So welcome to week four of the role of science in faith, where we're looking at whether or not, let's see if this is, yeah, that's going to work. We're looking at whether or not the, the Christian life and the biblical teaching is one that says you use your faith here and you use your science there, but the two don't necessarily have that much to do with each other. So we've been looking at this. I think this is absolutely critical information. The way I've laid the class out, it looks like we've got two more classes to come in this segment of this series. So I'm excited for you to be a part of this. I hope that this is a blessing. I hope you find some people to bring to class, especially as the summer's here. A lot of kids come home from college and other places, and so it's a wonderful chance to invite them to listen to some of this material that I think is pretty important stuff. So the role of science in faith Last week, I gave you three different options on the interplay of science and faith. I got an email from some fella who's working through this off of the internet, and he suggested to me I had left out a fourth option. Uh, I wrote him back, explained, I don't really think that I did, but we'll deal with it just in case. So if you're watching, this is going to be also for you. The first option is one that says that science and faith are opposite or at least do not join and marry together. They each occupy their own independent space. And if you want to live by faith, bless you, you live by faith. If you want to live by science, you live by science. But the two don't really have anything to do with each other. Some atheists and some Christians go so far as to put them on the opposite ends of a teeter-totter. The idea being you can live by science or you can live by faith. I do not believe that that is right. I do believe that that is an error. And so it's one that I want to address. A second option is to see some part of overlap between faith and science. You know, there's this little niche that they can co-occupy. And then a third option is the one that I believe is the biblical teaching. So... Within the framework of this, we've got these three options. Now, someone said to me, they said, but wait a minute, and this is via the internet. They said, what about a fourth option? What about the option that has science as a big circle? So we put science, and it's got inside it a smaller circle of faith, so that faith is a part of science. I said, with all due respect, I don't think that works because science cannot prove your faith. You can use science to help you determine that your faith is reasonable, but faith is not a part of science. Faith is much bigger than science. Faith takes into account things science cannot. Faith talks about a God that's outside of the universe. Science cannot prove anything about the God outside of the universe. So I don't think that that's a legitimate option, though logically it may seem to be one. I don't think it's a real one. So these are the options that we're looking at. This is the biblical view, the one that says faith exists as a bigger package, but the biblical view is that science is part of our faith. We believe that this world is made in an orderly fashion. It is made carefully thought out and planned, deliberately made, 
It is not something that God cobbled together with just a few afterthoughts and had to tinker with to get it just right after he started. In fact, the biblical view is that science is God's tool that he's given to humanity for us to use to good ends. And heaven knows we need that because we live in a world that has been marred by sin. We live in a world where the beauty of this world is corrupted. We live in a world where people do wicked things. We live in a world where the environment does wicked things. We live in a world of cancer. We live in a world of sickness and disease. We live in a world of sin and death. We live in a world where people's brains don't always work right. Their bodies don't always work right. Their emotions aren't on track. And so because we live in a situation like that, the, the, the curses that God announced upon woman, pain in childbirth, having to sweat to bring crops out of, out of uh, thorns and thistles. All of this is part of a world and science from a biblical view. From a biblical view, science is our tool to combat the fallen world. So if, if God is working in this world to bring good out of evil... And that's what we're supposed to be doing. Science is a principal tool, not the only tool, but it is a principal tool for doing that. Now here's the problem. Almost every tool that God gives us to use can be abused. Let me say it again. Almost every tool that God gives us to use can be abused. So, for example, uh, I'm always hungry when I'm teaching. Actually, I'm just always hungry. I've just got to admit that right now in my life, okay? So, the first illustrations that always come to my mind are food. You can eat food in a way that's really good. It's good for you. It gives you energy. It gives you balance. It gives you uh, vitamins. It gives you nourishment. It gives you all of these things. And it tastes good. It gives you a sensation. It takes you home to where you want to be, you know, with the home-cooked food or whatever it may be. Food has a great role. Food has a great role. But I'm bumped. Okay, I'm, Brent's not the only one who can make a pun. <laughs> Food has a great role, but it can be abused. Um, nuclear power can do some wonderful things. It can also become a bomb that does annihilation. So I hope within the framework of this we understand that God's given us science that can do horrible things. But science can do good things and help bring good from evil. And that's what it's there to do. So the biblical view of science is simply that. The biblical view of science is, is we take it and we fight against evil with it. If someone is sick, science is there to help make them well. Yesterday I was flying back from London and I got, started getting sick. And so I go to the pharmacy. And I buy drugs. They helped. They, 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 they help dry you up. They help you stop coughing. 
They help your ears pop on the airplane. I mean, I was loading it, man. I want the decongestant. Give me that antihistamine. Give me that cough suppressant. Give me that. I was a drugstore walking on that airplane. And I'm feeling it today. <laughs> no, I, all of those things. Sometimes science can win the struggles against evil and the results of evil. Sometimes it can't. I lost a client two weeks ago from ovarian cancer. And she was one of the ladies that I had tried the case for. The case is still on appeal. And she didn't live to see the end. The best science we've got called to try to stop the suffering, to try to heal the disease, but it wasn't successful. And so we've got that, and, and, and as Christians and as believers, we need to embrace it. But some have said to me, with the best of intentions, Mark, can't we just ignore that? Can't Christians just ignore science? Can't we just talk about faith and let the scientists deal with science? No. We cannot. And we should not. That is not where we belong. Christians need to speak out about science. Christians are not in a position to ignore science. Christians are in a position, the best position, to embrace science because we infuse it with purpose and direction and morality and ethics and meaning and significance. Science doesn't get that on its own. We can take science and make sure it's directed for good, not evil. So we don't ignore science. We embrace science. I've thought of five different reasons why. Actually, I thought of seven, but I'd already done the PowerPoint when I did five. So you want to talk some more? I got more. Man, I'm telling you, I, I, I kept several back in case I need more ammo for you, okay? Let's look at these five reasons together. Reason number one. Are you ready for this? Embracing science will enhance our ability to read the Bible. If we will embrace science, we will be better Bible students. Now, there are times where the Bible seems to differ with science. I've had people tell me, well, that may be what the scientists say, but that's not what the Bible says. And some people, when they tell me that, say, I'm going to agree with the Bible and not science. Some people, when they tell me that, say, I'm going to agree with science and the Bible's a junk book. I'm going to suggest to you something different than both of those. I'm going to suggest to you the first reaction is, if Scripture and science seem to differ, keep digging. Keep digging in Scripture and keep digging in science. But keep digging because there's not going to be this contradiction between true science and a true reading of Scripture. It's just not going to be there. 
God is truth. God made this world truly. The scripture is true revelation. So if the two seem to conflict, we need to do some more digging. There was a time, and I want to show two different sides of this coin. There was a time where people in the Middle Ages believed that the earth was flat. This is before 1492 when Columbus sailed the ocean blue. And some people justified their belief on the Bible. And they said, the Bible teaches the world is flat. I don't care what science says. I'm sticking with the Bible. And they used passages like, whoops, used passages like Psalm 74, 17, where it says of God, you have fixed all of the boundaries of the earth. People say, well, pfft, the earth can't be round. They wouldn't have boundaries. Or Psalm 72, 8 is one of many that reference the ends of the earth. Well, the earth can't be round. It wouldn't have ends. There was a period of time where well-meaning, good-intentioned, faithful people believed that the sun revolved around the earth rather than the earth going around the sun. It's called geocentrism, geo for earth, centrism, the center, as if the earth is the center of the universe. And the sun goes around the earth. And some would justify this by the Bible. Psalm 113.3 talks about the rising of the sun to its setting. And so some well-meaning, Bible-believing people said, that's a sign that the sun is moving. It rises. It doesn't say the earth rotates. It says the sun rises and the sun sets. Then they would cite passages like Psalm 104.5. He sets the earth on its foundations so it should never be moved. And they would say, how can you say that the earth is going around the sun? The earth can't move. The Bible says it. Passages like Ecclesiastes 1.5. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises again. And so people point to this, good Bible-believing people, and say, look, clearly the Bible is wrong. Or well-meaning people say, no, science is wrong, the Bible is right. That, you know, we've got this flat earth, and somehow the sun and the moon are just rotating around and hustling back to where they started at the beginning. By the way, the movie clip I'm showing you is not actually from the 1400s. They didn't have that good a resolution in their movies. Into this scene comes Galileo Galilei. And Galileo comes and he starts arguing against this. He's big into telescopes. He's big into math. He's, he, he's from Pisa. So he's, he's you know, he, he walked like this. <laughs> Sorry. It's either that or make a pizza joke, but I just decided to go for the, you know. 
His nickname was Eileen. So he'd been dabbling with this, and he gets in trouble in 1532 when he writes a dialogue where he basically has someone who's arguing Pope Urban VII's argument and someone who's arguing for Galileo's argument that the sun is in the center and the earth goes around the sun, not vice versa. And the Catholic Inquisition gets upset and the Jesuits who'd been supporting him before get upset. He loses his support. He goes on trial in front of the Inquisition and he's found guilty. And he's found guilty for this. Having believed and held the doctrine which is false and contrary to the sacred and divine scriptures that the sun is the center of the world and does not move from east to west, that the earth moves and is not the center of the world, and that an opinion may be held and defended as probably after it has been declared and defined to be contrary to holy scripture. In other words, he is guilty of saying that the sun is stationary and the earth rules, rolls around it rather than the earth stationary with the sun rising, which is against Scripture. Hence, he's found guilty of heresy and basically sentenced to house arrest for the rest of his life. Now, here's the problem. That is an instance of how science should have driven Pope Urban VII and the Jesuit scholars and anyone else involved to more carefully examine the scriptures. Had they done so, they would have realized that they're reading some, this Bible in a way it was not intended to be read. There is a large distance between the time this scripture was written and our reading of it. And the culture is totally different. And the way we process thoughts, totally different. Our vocabulary, totally different. And we do a disservice to Scripture if we fail to read it in its context. That includes its cultural context. Uh, we were, uh, uh, Pastor David and Pastor Lewis and Beverly and I were in England this week. Uh, had some stuff to do. And and, and, and driving home from the airport last night, I hit this big old pothole. I mean, this thing was, I think a meteor may have formed it. It was like, it was moon crater size, okay? It was really, really deep. And I was only going like 65 or so when I hit it in Becky's car. <laughs> Wasn't my car. But... <clears throat> Fortunately, we made it okay. But I want to say something. If I had had a blowout, I could have properly said to you, I'm mad about my flat. But if I just two days earlier in London had said, I'm mad about my flat, instead of being angry about a tire, I could have been saying, I'm just deliriously crazy happy about my apartment. Because that's the way they use the phrase. Your flat is your apartment over there. And if you're mad about it, it doesn't mean you're angry. It means you're deliriously happy. Same words, different cultures, different meaning. So we've got to be real careful when we read Scripture 
in our language, in our culture, without first trying to understand what it says. So let's go back and look at a couple of these passages more appropriately. When the scripture talks about the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised, Psalm 113.3. To appearances, the sun rises and the sun sets. That's the appearance of things. You get on Google. Uh, I, I, one of our, our drivers this week was um, uh, Muslim. And uh, we were in Hull, and he was Muslim, and we were talking to him, and he says, yes, you're my last fare of the day, and then I'm going home. We're in Ramadan, and in Ramadan, we fast from the time the sun rises till the time the sun sets. You can Google, what time does the sun rise today? Now, who's going to say Google's wrong? Who's going to say our vocabulary's wrong? Well, technically the sun doesn't rise. When someone says to you, hey, is the sun set yet? Do you ever say to them, well, technically, let me explain something to you. The sun does not set. The sun is stationary and the earth rotates around it. So what you mean to be asking me is, has the earth rotated the sun beyond its horizon yet? That will get you uninvited to every dinner party you could ever want to miss. From the rising of the sun to its setting is a marvelous, poetic, expressive way of saying all day long. Psalm 113.3 says, praise God all day long. Don't misread the Bible because we're trying to make it speak where it's not speaking. How about the passage from uh, Psalm 119, 90? Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth and it stands fast. What does that mean? That means, very simple, God's got this. Don't worry about whatever you're fretting about. God's got this. Just as certainly as you're standing here, just as sure as there's an earth, God's got this. He's provided for this earth. He's provided for everything. His faithfulness endures to all generations. He's got it. Whatever your problem is, God's got it if you'll trust it to him. That's what that means. Don't get so lost in reading these words. And you say, well, now, Mark, that means you don't believe the Bible's literal. Oh, yes. I believe it's literally true in what it's claiming. But that's what it's claiming here. And that's why we've got to do it. So I think one reason we embrace science is it will enhance our reading of Scripture. Second reason. If we embrace faith and science together, it's going to have a positive effect on our evangelism, on our sharing with the world. There's a geologist at Kansas State University, and admittedly that's not Texas Tech, but it's still a good school. <clears throat> His name's Keith Miller, and he edited this book, um, Perspectives on an Evolving Creation. And in it, he says the following. Any Christian theology which hopes to compete in the world of ideas must take seriously the conclusions of modern science, just as it must take seriously contributions from all other areas of human knowledge. We can't be naive. Now, people will say, yes, yes. But you can't trust science. They used to think the earth was flat. 
okay, that's a different deal. But two plus two is still four. There are some reasonable things we can trust from science. And if we don't understand that and we don't embrace that, then we're not living in the Christian worldview that says faith includes science. Alistair McGrath is one of my favorite writers. He's got a PhD in molecular biology. As well as a PhD in theology. He was an atheist publishing peer-reviewed work in molecular biology before he became a Christian. He wrote a book entitled A Scientific Theology, and in volume one, Nature, he said, to appeal to the natural sciences as the handmaid of Christian theology, the partner, is modifying, just merely modifying the grand tradition of engaging with culture. Here's, here's uh, what he's talking about. That's kind of wordy. I mean, read it, enjoy it. But I know Alistair well, and he would want me to break it down for a moment. Knowing we've got all ages in here. There was a time the church began as a Jewish institution. And over time, the, the church understood by the guidance of the Holy Spirit that the, the, the Lord meant it for all people of all faith, of, of all races. And so it spread beyond the Jewish race to the Gentiles. As it did so, there came a point where the Jews rebelled against Rome. And in that rebellion, the, the Jewish Christians seem to have been pacifists and they don't seem to have fought. And Judaism removed the Christians from their midst in a very real sense. And until that time in 60, 70 AD, the intelligentsia within the church came out of Judaism. But once Judaism was removed as the, the hotbed of what was fueling the church's fire, the intelligentsia became Greek philosophers. And so you have the church changing its theology noticeably. And in the 200s, a lawyer <laughs> turned theologian, a North African fellow named Tertullian, was fed up with it. Because he thought that the Greek philosophy that had crept into the church had disturbed and distorted the original Jewish message. And so Tertullian is famous for asking this question. What does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? In other words, why should we who have a Jewish based faith be led and taught and misled and mistaught by people who are coming at it from Athens, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, uh, you name it, from, from the Athenian schools of philosophy. Now among the answers that, gave the, that the church gave to help understand this was a reference to a weird thing that happened in Exodus. In Exodus, when God's pulling the people of Israel out from under Pharaoh, he tells the people of Israel, go ask all your Egyptian neighbors for some goodies. And the Egyptian neighbors want the Jews, or not Jews, they're Israelites at the time, want them gone. So they give them some goodies. 
Here, take this bracelet. Now leave, please. Here, take this necklace. Leave, please. Here's my brooch. Here's my scarab. Here's my whatever it is. Leave, please. And the scripture says that the Jews were able, or the Israelites, sorry, were able to plunder the Egyptians and take some of their best stuff. And that's what the Israelites used to make the temple uh, accoutrements, the, the tabernacle accoutrements, the lampstands and all of that kind of stuff. So what the early church said was, yeah, maybe we're being swayed some by Greek philosophy, but truth is God's wherever it's found. And so just as the Israelites were able to plunder the Egyptians for treasures that they brought to worship God, we're able to go to Greek philosophy and plunder for treasures and bring them in to worship and understand God. We're just plundering the Egyptians. And there was truth to that, that we need to find in every way, in every age, a way to engage with culture. And that's what embracing science and faith together does. It gives us an ability to, to, to relate to people, to see how the two connect, so that we can better speak to people. It's something that belongs to God. All truth belongs to God. Whether it's truth on a blackboard, truth in a laboratory, or truth in how you treat your neighbor. God didn't say, I am, I am moral truth, the way and the life. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So reason two, if we embrace faith and science... It's going to have a positive effect on our evangelism. Reason number three, we will learn more about God through science and the Word than we will if we just look at the Word alone. This might stun you. Let me go back to what Alistair said. He said, a positive working relationship between Christian theology and the natural science is demanded by the Christian understanding of the nature of reality itself. What we believe is real demands that we interact. An understanding that's, that, that's grounded in the doctrine of creation. If God made this world, then it's not simply nature, it's His creation. And it might be expected to show something of God's character. And so we look at it and we can learn from God. Paul said the same thing that Alistair said. Paul said it in Romans 1.20. He said that God's invisible attributes, attributes you cannot see, his eternal power, how, what he can do, his divine nature, they're clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. When I consider the heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you've established, I see this awesome grand God. If he can put planets out there, we're only now discovering. If he can make subatomic particles, we're only now understanding. If he can create dark matter that only now we'll be able to find and prove. Do you think he can handle the problem you've got today? Amen. 
His eternal power is perceived in this massive creation. But it's not just that. It's also His divine nature. We learn this is a cause and effect world pretty quickly. Stick your finger in the fire, you're going to get burned. Cause and effect. And God is a cause and effect God. Sin leads to death. Whatever you sow, that also shall you reap. Some people have equated this to two books. There is a book of Revelation, that is the Bible. There is a book of nature, that is the world. Both of them by God. Both of them revealing God. Some people, uh, I was reading a, a Duke uh, philosophy guy who said such an idea, this book of Revelation, book of nature, that's just a cop out. That's garbage. And he, he labels it garbage, but he doesn't explain why, because it's not garbage. And it's, he's wrong if he would research it. It's not something that has just come up in the last 10 years as we've been trying to figure out how to hold on to faith in the midst of unraveling the DNA. No, Francis Bacon, one of the great thinkers back in the 17th century, said, let no man think or maintain that a man can search too far or be too well studied in the book of God's word or in the book of God's work. And I'd say it was him, wasn't just him. Frederick Temple, Archbishop of Canterbury in the late 1800s, said the book of nature and the book of Revelation come alike from God. And that he has no more right, the, the student, has no more right to refuse to accept what he finds in the one than what he finds in the other. He goes on to say, the two books are indeed on totally different subjects. The one may be called a treatise on physics and mathematics. The other a treatise on theology and morals. But they are both by the same author. Let's go back even further. How about John Calvin? Men are commonly, and women, commonly subject to these two extremes. Namely, that some, forgetful of God, apply the whole force of their mind to the consideration of nature. And others, overlooking the works of God, aspire with a foolish and insane curiosity to inquire into his essence. In other words, some will spend all of their time here and ignore the world. Some will spend all of their time in the world and ignore here. Those are the extremes we need to not be either. Reason number three, we'll learn more of God through science and the word and the world than simply in the word alone. Reason number four, ethical issues demand that faith dialogue with science. Science is useless, in my opinion, on the issue of ethics. Um, the ethics of cloning. Uh, you know, the idea that we, we can take a cell and we can replicate 
a creature that already exists. I have a friend who um, had a cutting horse. He loved that cutting horse. He won a national title with that cutting horse. Cutting horse, for those of you who may not know, is a horse that you get on and you have a bunch of cattle in front of you and you single out one of the, the cows to cut him off from the rest of the herd. And that cow in the herd mentality will try to get back with the herd. And the horse has got to be able to, to take its rider and, and follow that cow and keep the cow cut for the time limit. And uh, uh, this, this cow was like, I mean, this horse, cutting horse, was amazing. Absolutely amazing. But he couldn't breed very well. And so my friend, after winning the world title and all, was very frustrated. The horse is getting older. So he cloned the horse. Made a duplicate through the wonders of science. And then came to me and said, would you sue the Thoroughbred Association because they won't let me register the clone? I said, no. Um, <clears throat> Their prerogative, they're, they're their own association, I'm sorry. But the ethics of cloning, is it okay to clone a person? Can I take my cells, find the stem cells or the necessary cells, and give it to someone and say, hey, make another me? I know what you're thinking. Egads! <laughs> One's too much already. And where, where are the ethics? Science doesn't give you answers. What, what's, what, what is the questions that arise about artificial insemination? Got a woman and a man, want a child, unable to have childbirth uh, or, or uh, fertilization naturally? Where do we draw the line? Science doesn't tell you the morality and the ethics of it. How about manipulating DNA? Let's say you figured out how you can manipulate DNA to get someone to where they can no longer uh, get the AIDS virus. You can manipulate DNA such that you can genetically determine whether the child's going to be male or female. You know, where, where, where does science give us those answers? That doesn't. Those answers are not found in the world of science. Those are moral and ethical answers and questions and discussions that require faith in science to be handmaidens. You, you, keep going. Ah, there we go. These ethical issues demand that faith dialogue with science. By the way, next week, my plan is to talk to you about then how do we handle issues, for example, of creation and evolution? How do we handle them biblically? How do we handle them scientifically? What is there? But the week after that, so three weeks, two weeks out, whatever it winds up being, the next week that I'm teaching will be one where we discuss some of these issues. Then what, does, what do we believe ethically about cloning? What do we believe ethically about stem cells? What do we believe about artificial insemination? What do we believe? And we'll go through those things together. 
and look at them and try to figure out a, a paradigm that allows science to be in that world space within our faith. But I told you five reasons. Let me give you the fifth. This may hit you as a little weird. God is not discussed in science books, at least in most of them. Now, why would that be a reason for us to embrace science? Well, science books, by and large, are written for people of many different faiths and people of no faith. I mean, it'd be pretty bizarre to find a science book on math that starts out with an explanation of God. Because the people who are learning math, they may be people of Christian faith, people of Jewish faith, people of a Buddhist faith, a Muslim faith, a, a, a Hindu faith, Baha'i faith, no faith. And they're all going to be learning. So the books that are written about science and the books that are written about math are not going to have in them big sections. Now there's something that happens subtly as a result. We can have a tendency to think that scientists must not be people of faith because we read their books and there's no reference to the faith. We just automatically assume if you're a scientist, you're not a believer. And that's not fair and that's not right. And there's a host of scientists who are extremely accomplished, who are extremely leading their field, who have a fervent faith in God. One of my favorite people to talk to about this, through uh, Janet Seifert. Where's Janet? Is she here today? Oh, can I tell you stories about her? Oh... Uh. <laughs> Janet Seifert introduced me and uh, Pastor David, and we went and had tea with him a few years ago in his home. He's come over since. I had lunch with him a, a couple of months ago. It's been a neat relationship. A fellow by the name of Simon Conway Morris. Now, Simon Conway Morris is one of the leading evolutionists in the world. At Cambridge University, he, I think, is the head of paleoevolution there. He wrote the book on the Burgess Shale, which is one of the key... Uh, uh, linchpins for, for evolution. So here you've got a fella who is one of the key evolutionists in the world. And if you talk to him, he is a fervent believer in God. He is a fervent believer in the virgin birth, in the death, burial, and physical resurrection of the Lord Jesus on behalf of his sins, and that Jesus will come again. They're saying, well, okay, is he schizophrenic? That's what some of you are thinking. No, he's not. I mean, he's smarter than a tree full of owls. But he he's comes from a different place. But it's really, really interesting. And I'm just saying, he's one of the world's leading scientists in the area of evolution. And yet he is a fervent, faithful Believer who attends church more often than most of us. One of the folks who decoded the human genome. A fervent Christian believer 
There are leading scientists in all sorts of areas. But if you're just reading the textbooks, you don't understand that. Faith needs to integrate with science because if we don't do it and we don't do it publicly and we don't do it well, we're going to raise a generation of kids who think, well, if I go science, I don't have faith. No, absolutely not. If God calls you to go into science, take your faith into science. And do the best science in the world. So that 20 years from now, someone's standing up saying, that student, or not, who's now an adult, that lead scientist, fervent believer. So how do we sort through all of this? What do we need to do? I think we do need to address some issues around how we understand creation and evolution because that's a huge problem so many of our kids face. I want to talk about that next week. And then I think we need to talk about how we then set up a moral framework to understand ethically some of the marvelous things where science can do things that are great, but science can also do things that are not. And so we've got to try and figure that out. But here's your take action steps for now. First of all, I've decided just for today, I'm going to make this call. I'm going to praise God all day long. Or as I like to say, from the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is going to be praised by me. Next, I'm going to trust God all day long. Because his faithfulness endures to all generations. He's established the earth. It stands fast. But no, it's rotating. Well, right here, it sort of seems to me it's standing fast. And I'm going to rely upon that. I mean, I remember when I was a kid. And I first learned that the earth rotates. You know what I thought I could do? I figured, I, I marked out a place on the ground. I'm going to jump up. And the earth's going to rotate. And I'm going to land in a different spot. That lasted about five minutes, and then I decided I wasn't jumping high enough. Turns out the air's moving, too. Who'd have thunk? But, but none of that distracts me from understanding what the psalmist is saying. God's faithfulness endures to all generations. He's reliable. He's as reliable as the ground I'm standing on, which is firm. And then last, I want to learn of God all day long. Because his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature, they're clearly perceived in the world around us. And so I want to look at that and I want to learn about it. I want to learn from him. I got an email from someone who made fun of me last night, uh, last Sunday, for telling you, go home, learn physics. Well, go home and learn physics. I'll say it twice. I can't wait to do it. Thank you guys for paying attention to what I believe is just an absolutely critical subject for us. Can I bless you in the name of Jesus and then we'll reconvene next week. Father, I do ask your blessings in the name of Jesus. I pray that you'll give us wisdom, discernment, that you will grow our faith in you, that you will grow our faith in your word, your revelation, that we will behold this world with eyes and faith that see your beauty, that perceive your nature, and that we will be able to speak into this world the truth of who you are 
your character, your morality, your righteousness, and that we will image that, we will model that, we will reflect that to the world around us as bearers of your image in this, your creation. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. See you guys next Sunday.